with you, and uh, we've been praying for you as a church and as a team. Uh, we often pray for you, and so uh, we really believe that we're an extension of Southbridge, and so all the good things that are happening here, um, we get excited about, and that's uh, so when we see a new baptism video. We, we, lo- we love that. Scott was up at Redemption in August. Jason was up in September, and so we've had these connections that have been really great, and our people um, really appreciate you, and so uh, j- just know that, and so we're, we covet your prayers, and we're grateful for them, and some of you have financially supported Steph and I and, and our church in general, and we're just really grateful for that, and so um, thank you for, for loving on us in such an incredible way. I want to share a story with you. Um, it, take, it took place in Traverse City, Michigan. Has anyone here ever been to Traverse City, Michigan? All right, a few people, all right? Traverse City, Michigan um, has a place at it called the Sleeping Bear Dunes. And the Sleeping Bear Dunes were voted the prettiest place in America by Good Morning America. And I lived in Michigan almost my entire life, except the two and a half years that um, I was down here at Southbridge. And uh, I had never been to Traverse City in my whole life. And so we, as a team, went up there in the summertime, and we went up to the Sleeping Bear Dunes. I have a picture of it so you can see uh, how pretty it is. It's a very beautiful place. It's right on Lake Michigan, and uh, they have this incredible dune there. And you can kind of see the picture on the left up there. We have our overlooking this site, and the dune is literally straight down. In fact, when you're looking at the people at the bottom, they look like ants. Like they look really, really, really small. And so we had this, this goal as we're looking at this to enjoy the beauty of the Lord and, and how much he, these beautiful things that he's ultimately created. But also with this dune, they have a, a warning sign that tells you, please stay up here and enjoy the view from here. If you choose to go down the dune, it could take you up to two hours to get back up. And you have to pay for the help yourself. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm glad that I'm not going down the dune. That would be a a terrible plan. And our worship pastor, Steve, said, I think we should go down the dune. And I said to him, why? Like, do you want to lose your sanctification? Do you, uh, this is not going to go well. This is going to be really bad. Like, do you, are you inviting pain into your life? You, you enjoy that? And um, so we took a team vote, and Steve voted yes, and I voted no. And the final decision came on to our, my other teammate, Matt, and he's the most fit of all of us. So he chose, let's, let's go down. And so our wife stayed up the top. They're the ones that are taking the pictures. And we started heading down, and we got about a third of the way down this dune. I mean, literally a third. We notice that everyone that's coming up the dune is on all fours, right? And they're, they're, they're angry and they're, they're frustrated. And we had this 10-year-old girl come by and she looks at us with this look of horror on her face and she says, don't do it, stop. <laughs> and so I, in that moment, decide as the team leader to stop us. And I told the guys, so look at the water, it's incredible. Look how far we've come. We've come about a third of the way down and I said, now, now look at the incline of the dune. I said, it is, it is incredibly steep. It, it is crazy steep. And so I made the executive decision that we're going to turn around. And so Steve, our, my worship leader, he, he turns around and he, he's, he's a little bit bigger dude. And he starts sprinting up the dune, like full out sprint. He's like, let's do this, you know, some of that kind of attitude that quickly goes away when you're running up a dune. And he starts running up the dune, and he is 30 seconds in. He says this, I'm done. <laughs> like, that doesn't work. You can't, you can't be done. No one's carrying you up the dune. This was your idea. You need to figure out how you're going to get back up the dune. Right? You got to get it. You got to make it happen. And here's the crazy piece, right? You take 20 steps in a sand dune. It's like taking three steps, right? And your feet sink 12 inches into each step. 
Well, eventually we made it back up to the top. It took us about 30 minutes. And you can see Steve, I have one picture. You can see he's on all fours there. And uh, he's, he's, he's very angry. He thought he was going to die on the dune. And those are the kind of things that were coming out of his, coming out of his mouth. And so why would I share you this, this story? Well, our big idea for the morning is this, is that God's glory will always reign. God's glory will always reign. And when we're on this dune, literally it's the biggest dune I've ever been on in my life. Literally you are a third of the way down and I'm thinking, man, uh, it's really steep. It gets even steeper. We're like, kind of like straight down and I'm thinking I'm in trouble. Like the weight of the dune, the size of the dune, the magnitude of the dune was, was greater than us. So what we, need, what we need to know is this. We should never be done hearing about the reality that God's going to receive the glory. Because if we do, if we're tired of that, then we have a problem. You see, when God gets the glory, it always ends in our good. And so also what should happen is we should celebrate the constant reminder that he's going to get the glory because it's always going to end with what's best for us. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 14 this morning. We're going to see that God's glory will, will always reign, and we're going to see how God's glory will reign. And I believe that happens in a very specific way, which is through the plan of redemption, through God's plan of salvation. And we're going to see three different aspects of his redemption and, and why he receives glory through it. And here's the first one. The first way he receives glory through redemption is because it's releasing us from bondage, releasing us from bondage. We're going to be in uh, Exodus chapter 14. Picking it up in verse 1 and 2, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of this crazy name between Migdal and the sea in front of um, Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. Here's a question. Why are the Israelites in the middle of nowhere camping? How many camping fans do we have here? You like to get dirty, like, and I'm not talking like buy a $100,000 trailer with your 60-inch flat screen, your hot tub on top, and your helicopter pad. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm talking about roughing it, like setting up your tent and, and making your fire and hanging your food in a tree so the bears don't eat you kind of thing, right? Really roughing it. That's what these, that's what these people are doing. They're camping. All right, I don't like to get dirty. Camping's never been a thing for me, but why are they in the middle of, the, of nowhere? Well, they're in the middle of nowhere because they were slaves in Egypt, and they weren't slaves for five years or 50 years or 150 years. They were slaves for 430 years. So just to comp- help you understand what that means, our country is 239 years old, right? They were slaves for four and a half years centuries. It's an incredible time. And so God sent Moses into Egypt and, and uh, his plan was to get his people to be free. And Pharaoh kept saying, no, 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 no. And so what did God do, right? God brought these 10 plagues out on top of Egypt to show that he was stronger, that he was greater than any Egyptian God. You see, we must remember that God will always get the glory. The glory of the Lord will always reign. So the Israelites at this point are out in the middle of nowhere and they've seen the Lord do some incredible stuff. And as they're walking and working away from Egypt, they get what the Lord says here. He says, turn back and encamp in front of the sea. And if I'm the Israelites, I gotta be thinking, wait a second, Lord, you want us to get closer to the slave master? Like you want us to turn around and, and, and move back to where we were slaves for four and a half centuries? He says, yes, and I want you to build up this camp right in front of the sea. Why would he do that? Let's take a look at it. Verse three. 
says this, for Pharaoh will save the people of Israel. They are wandering in the land and the wilderness has shut them in and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord and they did so. And so why did God want them to build up camper? Because God wanted them to be trapped. God wanted them to be stuck. Why? Because what God was going to do is that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh's going to develop this attitude that, hey, these are my slaves. They're my people. They're my workforce. They're, they're my labor. I'm going to go and get them. I'm going to capture them. I'm going to bring them back to Egypt, bring them back to bondage. But what does the Lord promise? The Lord promised, as you catch it in verse four, that I will get the glory over Pharaoh, he says. Listen, the glory of the Lord will always reign. And he says, here's what the people of, of, of Egypt are gonna know, that I am the Lord. I'm the Lord. That's what they're gonna know. I'm the one in control that Pharaoh, they're not your people. They are my people. I have rescued them. I have brought them out of bondage. And so we have this incredible picture here of redemption and the avenue through which God is choosing to receive glory. You see, the people are being released from bondage. And it's almost like God is saying, come Pharaoh, come and get them because it's gonna be quite a show. So we have this picture of salvation. And we see the story is going to develop, and it gets a little bit more intense. In verse uh, 6, it says this. It says, So he made, speaking of Pharaoh, ready his chariot, and he took his army with him, and he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with his officers over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the other people, or while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen, his army, and they overtook them and camped at the sea. So here he comes. Here comes Pharaoh with everything that he got. He has 600 chariots, all his horsemen, all other chariots in, in, in all of Egypt. And he's bringing every soldier he has. Everything he has is coming at Israel. The Israelites, it's all coming. Everything at his disposal is plowing forward. And I believe what we're seeing here is we're seeing the, the glory of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's saying, listen, let me show you the weight of who I am. Let me show you the glory of who I am. And here's, here's my army. Look how strong we are. Look how big we are. Look how the numbers we have. And we just have these Israelites in the wilderness who are weaponless. And how could they stand up against us? And as I look at the description of Pharaoh's army, I ask myself the question, how many battles do you think he lost with his army? Probably not very many. Right? And he's got to be thinking of this attitude. For four and a half centuries, our people have run these Israelites into the ground. No way is that ever going to change on my watch. At, at best, we'll bring them back as slaves. At worst, we'll just kill them by the sea and leave them there just to die. So we have over a million Israelites hanging out by the sea, weaponless. And here comes the world's greatest, largest army that's ever been known at that time. Incredible. They have to be thinking, it's over, right? It's over. Do you realize that the slave master in our lives comes after us in a powerful way. Isn't it true that our sin nature will go down swinging, won't it? Like literally, it wants to get every shot in it possibly can. And so we see these people that are, that are physically free from the slave master, but the spiritual reign of the slave master is still very strong in their hearts. Have you experienced this before in your own life? We see this through the process of sanctification, of us becoming more like Jesus, that you are positionally free, you're positionally released from bondage, but the slave master is constantly knocking on your door, saying, hey, come back to me. There's some things that we need to get after. 
See, the slave master is strong. He is strong. So you know everything about your enemy, don't you? Like, I know everything about my enemy. I know everything about my sin tendencies. I know what it looks like for me to say yes to God. I know what it looks like for me to say yes to sin. And, and I know what that bow is going to look like and that gift that the devil or my flesh will offer up to me. Like, I, I know exactly what it looks like. And the people here are feeling quickly overwhelmed because they know about the power of the enemy. They've experienced Egypt's power for four and a half centuries. And so what does that lead them to do? This is where the story is just incredible. In verse 10 it says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and it says, And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. So they see the enemy, and it says that they lifted up their eyes, and it has the word behold, meaning they stopped in their tracks, they stared, they gazed, they focused at what? At the strength of the enemy. They saw the enemy, they saw Pharaoh in all his wonder, in all his splendor, and it led them to what? Did you catch it in verse 10? That they feared greatly. Ultimately, they start to question the Lord, and they're saying ultimately this, God, you tried really hard. God, you did a really good work in Egypt, but here they come. Who on the planet is going to stop that army from just destroying us? So decent job, God, but we need something else greater. We need something else better than what you can do. It's incredible. You see, when we get our focus off our rescuer and off our redeemer, we quickly realize that we are overmatched. We quickly realized that we are in trouble and because of this, they cried out to the Lord. And what did they say to the Lord? It says this in verse 11. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us out to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Listen to this statement. It would have been far better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Ever been there in your walk with Jesus before? Like, would you rather have an easy life on this earth and know Jesus or a really difficult life and Jesus? Like, they're like, hey, God, what are you doing? You see, they have this incredible doubt. They have this incredible lack of confidence. God, you tried really hard. God, you, you did your best. When is it that you lack, tr- lack trust in your comforter? When is it that you lack trust in the Lord? When is it that you lack confidence in your, rescu- in your rescuer? When is it that you will doubt the Lord? Please know this, that you will doubt the Lord. You will lack confidence in the Lord when you believe that the slave master is stronger than the cross of Christ. You see, that's what happens is, is we start to doubt when we believe that God doesn't have it under control. And so what's happening in the moment here for the Israelites is it's utter chaos. It's complete intensity. The level's getting high. But please know this, at the center of the chaos in your life, the glory of the Lord is going to reign. And so when you doubt, when you lack trust, when you question, at the center of God's chaos, God's glory will always prevail. And maybe you're here this morning and you'd confess to know Jesus, but you realize that sin has been reigning in your heart and in your life for decades. You know Jesus, you know positionally you are justified because of the blood of Christ, but your life is more in practice with that of a sinner than it is a saint. And you'd confess that you are a slave to sin, and you know what it looks like 
to experience a bondage every single day. And maybe it's every hour, maybe it's every minute for you, but you think that you are trapped, that you are stuck, that you have nowhere to go, that you are doomed, that you have no hope, that everyone would really disprove of you if they really knew the real you, that there's nothing powerful enough to break this slave master, this, the chains that I'm under in my heart and in my life. But then we get this incredible text in Romans chapter eight, verse one where it says there is therefore now. Like that's a timely word, like in this moment right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, so what does that mean? It means this, that you are not trapped. It means that you are not doomed. It means you've been given the greatest hope of all, that the most important one actually knows everything about you. And guess what this verse means? It means that he approves of you. If you know his son, he approves of you. That the sin that's reigning in your life has already been defeated. That you are absolutely no longer a slave. Well, Josh, you don't get it. My, my shame and my guilt are great. Listen, you experience shame because of who you are. You experience guilt because of what you've done. So the shame of who you are leads to the guilt of what you've done. But here's the question. If you're in Christ, how can there be guilt when there's no condemnation? How can there be guilt when the one that you are guilty before is saying there's no condemnation? How can there be shame when there's no one um, condemning you? You see, when you're in Christ, you are positionally free to say no to the slave master. You see, God's glory will always reign. And we see that his glory is going to reign through redemption. And the first part of redemption is us being released from bondage. And the second piece, I think these next few verses are some of my favorite verses in all of scripture. We're going to see this, that we're released by grace. Look at verse 13 with me. It says this, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. You see, the Israelites believe that they are done. The Israelites believe they have nowhere to run. They they literally have nowhere to hide. And behind them is a really well-known enemy that is advancing with more wrath than ever. And in front of them is an impassable sea that they'll never, ever be able to get across. They are in bondage. They are slaves. And the slave master is coming after them. And we see this amazing statement of Moses. He said, fear not but stand firm. You see, what he's doing is he's inviting grace. These people are experiencing this crazy feeling of death, but here's the reality that we need to know is this, is that grace vandalizes sin. It vandalizes sin. Do you realize that grace vandalizes all fear? That grace vandalizes the power of the slave master? That grace vandalizes the power of sin? That grace vandalizes the shame of who you are? That grace vandalizes the guilt of what you've done? That grace vandalizes our sin because Jesus Christ was vandalized at the cross. He took it all on. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, it says this, "For, For sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but you are under grace. You see, grace is doing something that you yourself could never do. You see, the law makes all these things known about you, but grace vandalizes all those things, meaning grace intentionally and deliberately destroys the truth of what sin claims on your life. You see, sin cannot rule what grace has ultimately invaded. And what does Moses tell the people? He says, fear not, in verse 13. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work out for you today. Wait a second, fear not? Do you see the size of the army? 
Moses, you see what they're coming at us with? They're the, the, this is the greatest army we've ever laid our eyes on. What do you mean to stand firm? He says, yes, stand firm. They're like, we're dead, man. We're in big trouble here. No, no, stand firm, he says, and see the salvation of the Lord. You see, Moses is giving us incredible insights on our walk with Jesus today. He says this, stop focusing on the slave master and start focusing on the Savior. Right, turn your focus around. You see, when you focus on our sin, when you focus on your sin more than your Savior, you will always give in to sin. That's how that works out. And so what we typically hear is the empty promises of the slave master. We hear him say that we are guilty, that we are worthless. And so we feel like, I better go back to sin because I don't know anything else. Or we hear him try to give these huge promises, come back to me. It'll be great. It'll be everything you ever wanted. You'll love everything that I have saved up for you. It's going to be incredible. You see, when we focus on our sin, that's what we hear. But if we focus on our Savior, we hear this. I've dealt with your mess. I'm providing you grace. Your shame is gone. Your guilt has been destroyed. Let's get to work on the brokenness. You see, it's a relational invitation. And so what Moses wants us to gather and wrap our minds around is that we need to stop being in all the strength of our slave master and start being in all the strength of our Savior, right? It's an incredible thing that he's saying here. Stop being in all the power of sin in your life and start being in all of the empty cross and the empty tomb and what everything that it has accomplished for your behalf. And then we get my favorite verse here in verse 14 where Moses says this. He says, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to do what? What's it say? Does it say you, the Lord will fight for you? You only have to perform better. The Lord will fight for you. You, you only have to volunteer more. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to work harder. The Lord will fight for you. You only can never, ever choose sin ever, ever again. No, you see, what Moses wants you to get is that you have nothing to contribute. That you have nothing of value to bring to the table. You see, the Lord will fight for you, he says. You only have to be silent. The King James Version says this. You only have to hold your peace. The NIV says that you, uh, you only have to be still. Incredible. It's almost like we get this picture. Grab your popcorn and your, 3D, and your 3D glasses and your favorite drink. Sit in your favorite chair, put your feet up, and watch the Lord get crazy in your life. Right? He's going to get crazy here. See, watch as through his grace he vandalizes this whole army. Watch as he deliberately destroys your slave master. Watch as he deliberately just demolishes your sinful past. Watch as he destroys all the shame and guilt that could exist in your life. And while you're watching this show, Moses is like, please remember all that you've already seen the Lord do as he freed you from Egypt. You see, when I think about the Lord's grace, I believe his grace is actually seen when he frees the people from Egypt through the 10 plagues. And the question I have been asking is, how do we see Jesus in the 10 plagues? Like, how do we get to Christ? Who is that Jesus bore the full force of the plagues on the cross? That at the cross, or in one of the plagues was darkness, and at the cross, Jesus experienced that the greatest level of darkness fell upon him 
One of the plagues was the Nile turning into blood. At the cross, Jesus' blood was, was shed. One of the plagues was the firstborn son being killed. And at the cross, we see the very firstborn son of the Lord, the only son, Jesus Christ, being killed, where he's starting something new. You see, I believe it's one of the, the greatest pictures of grace in all of Scripture, actually is that the battle of sin was won at the cross. It wasn't me and you who died, but it ultimately was the reigning son of God who died. And then verse 16 through 18, what God does is he tells Moses this plan. And look at these verses quickly. It says in verse 16, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on the dry ground and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them and I will get the glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. And verse 18 says, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. You see, here's the plan, um, Moses. Um, I'm going to want you to put your staff out and I'm going to divide the Red Sea. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah, the Red Sea, it's literally going to divide and, and the ground's gonna become immediately dry for all the people uh, to work through and then to walk through. And then what's gonna happen is all the Egyptians and all their splendor are going to come rushing into the sea and it's not gonna be dry anymore. It's gonna be a muddy mess for them. And so we see this really important piece that we can't miss, um, that we cannot understand grace separate from God's wrath. We can't separate those things. You see, the wrath that the Egyptians are about to receive is the very thing that we deserve. You see, the wrath of God gives birth to the grace of God. And so don't miss this, that God actually receives glory through both. God receives glory through his wrath and God receives glory through the grace that he reveals. And so verse 21 through 25, they start marching through the sea. They're walking through, they're walking through on dry ground and then in comes Pharaoh's whole army and their chariots start to get stuck in the mud and they get real panicky and they make this statement where they realize that it is the Lord who's doing this. And the Israelites cross the sea and Moses puts the staff back up and the water comes crashing down on all of the Egyptians and not one of them actually remained. You see, God's glory will always reign. And redemption is about being released from bondage. It's about being released by grace. And it's about being released to freedom. Look at the last few verses. In verse 29, it says, But the people of Israel walked on dry ground to the sea, and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Verse 30, thus, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And Israel saw that the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Did you realize that God had his hands over this entire thing? Now, over the whole story, God has his hands over all of it, over the water dividing, the, the dry ground, the, the clogging of the Egyptian um, chariots, all of it. And at the center of the chaos, God's glory will reign. And I believe I'm an Israelite that when I walk through the dry ground, that I'm walking through and it's a crazy celebration. We realize that we are walking to freedom. 
You can have no doubt when the sea actually divides and it's dry ground that, man, our God is literally incredible. And it tells us in the text that they saw the enemies dead on the shore. That's incredible. That's incredible to think about that. And I bet you they had this, this feeling of we are free, we are no longer slaves, and I had this visual in my, in my mind that they are talking trash to the dead bodies. You got nothing on our God. Our God's incredible. You can't do nothing. He's so much stronger than you. What do you think they felt when they saw the power of the Lord again? You see, I believe the power of the Lord that they experienced through grace actually led to life change. And we're not talking about a behavior modification, but we're talking about um, a radical change in their heart and in their life. That the old slavery is gone and this new life in Christ um, has begun being free. They are no longer slaves. That grace has also empowered this incredible belief. It tells us in the last verse that they feared the Lord now and they believed in the Lord. You see, those things didn't exist a few verses prior, right? Verse 10, they were doubting the Lord, questioning the Lord, and now they're totally confident in the Lord. You see, we are not saved by the quality of our faith, but we are saved by the object of our faith. That it's all about the Lord. And so how dare we in our battles with sin ever abandon the object of our faith? And so please wrap your mind around this, that redemption is not just about you being released from something, but it's about you being released to something. So redemption is releasing you from your past for the glory of the Lord, but it's also releasing you forward to display the glory of the Lord. And so we see that grace was experienced when they crossed from one side of the sea to the other. One side of the sea, they had a death sentence, and the other side of the sea, they went from death to life. This is freedom. This is how their status changed. For, so for a moment, think about your status with the Lord. You see, on one side of the sea, you had a death sentence coming from Pharaoh and all that he has to say in your, in your slave master. But on the other side of the sea, you become a part of the family of the Lord. On one side of the sea, you are not born again. On the other side of the sea, we are ultimately born again. On one side of the sea, we are under wrath. On the other side of the sea, we are under grace. We are redeemed by the Lord. And so now we have this ultimate privilege to grow in our relationship with Jesus every single day. Right, to have the Lord work in our heart and, and work in our life and, and move in us in, in amazing ways. And what does that look like? Well, this is what it looks like is that Christ takes the spot in the throne of my heart and I allow him to rule and I allow him to reign there. But our struggle, if we're going to be honest, is that our sanctification is typically two steps forward and one step back. So I'm taking two steps forward in my walk with Jesus, but then that goes well for me when he's on the throne, but then I get frustrated and I want to do something my way. And so I ask the Lord, can you get off the throne so I can sit back up there for a few moments to get some stuff done? And what's so crazy is the Lord steps off. He lets you, he lets you take control. He lets you decide how things are going to be played out. But I hope you can understand that God killed the power of the enemy by lavishing upon us his incredible grace. And our only appropriate response to that is allow him to reign in our heart and in our life. But ha- and that sounds great to us until our spouse does something we don't like, right? Our boss says something or does something we don't like. And so, hey, Lord, can I get on the throne again? There's some things I need to get done, some things that need to go my way. And typically what happens is when they go our way, we end up telling the Lord that was bad. 
That didn't go well. It's better when you are king. It's, it's better when you are in control, Lord, because I'm not a good king. You are ultimately the best king. Lord, please forgive me for putting my hope in something that I should never put my hope in. Will you forgive me of my idolatrous heart? You see, when whatever you place your hope in fails you, you will always experience shame. And so you can put your hope in your marriage. You can put your hope in financial freedom. You can put your hope in some sort of job security, some sort of vacation, some sort of possession. But whatever you put your hope in that is not the Lord, um, it'll always fail you every time. You can put your, your hope in your power to defeat sin in your own heart and your life. Um, please report back on how that goes for you. Because not, it's not going to go well. You see, you'll always experience shame. And the moment you, you fail, you realize that your hope was in something um, that was not of the Lord. And so here's a question. What is your redemption story? What is it that you've been released from? What kind of bondage were you brought out of? How has grace changed your life? How is that being displayed in the freedom of who you are in Christ these days? Maybe you're here this morning, you haven't acknowledged your need for Jesus. Do you realize that you've been specifically saved from something to specifically do something? Do you realize that the gospel was never meant to stop with you? Do you realize that God has you where he has you to advance the gospel through you? That God desires to do some incredible things in your heart and in your life? And so what are the things in your life that you still need to be released from? Because you're never going to change until the pain of staying the same grows greater than the pain of change. So what does that mean for us? It really means the gospel is saying is that your sinful past doesn't have to define you anymore. Your wounds, your habits, your mess, your brokenness doesn't have to define your life. But today you can be in a spot where you can repent and make things right with the Lord. You see, you can acknowledge that you need him. You can acknowledge that he's got to work in your heart and your life. You see, repentance is beautiful. And I believe it's one of those daily practices that should be taking place as I strive to become more like Jesus. You see, repentance is a change of mind which results in a change of direction. And so when I get on the throne of my life and I realize, hey, I'm not the best to be there, I get off and say, Lord, I was wrong again. Will you please take the throne? Please come after me, Lord. Please pursue me. Please continue to work in my heart and work in my life. And so everyone here, if you know Christ, you have a redemption story. And that story, the Lord has worked in your heart, is intentional. And we're all unique in our stories and things that we've gone through, but they actually all have something very much in common, and that is that Jesus Christ is awesome, right? So let's be a people that are going to live our lives to make much of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and this awesome opportunity to be back here at Southbridge and, and open up your word, Lord. I pray that you will, you will work in our hearts and work in our lives, Lord, to, to remember that you will always get the glory. And the good times of my life and the bad times of my life, there's something that's always going to be reigning, and that's your son, Jesus. And so may I realize, Lord, of the things in my heart that need to go, I don't need to be scared of the slave master anymore, Lord. I just need to turn my focus off my sin and get my focus on my Savior and live my life motivated by what you say about me. So Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, that's stuck in chains, the slave master's driving them all around, that they don't have any freedom. I pray today will be the day that they realize that those chains can be gone. The slave master doesn't have to be the voice anymore, but that your son Jesus can be. Lord, we love you and are grateful for you. In your name, amen.